Welcome to China Matters, a China Institute podcast. I'm your host Jia Wang. Today we'll discuss religion in China with Professor Ryan Dunch. Dr. Dunch is a professor of history and chair of the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta. He specializes in modern Chinese history, particularly Chinese Christianity. Welcome, Professor Dunch. Thank you. It's good to be here. Um, so today we'll be focusing on a big topic: religion、uh, in China. So while China is widely seen as a secular country, there's still a sizable and growing number of religious followers. Could you give us a sense of perhaps the current state of religion in China? Sure. I think we should start by talking about this concept of a secular country because it is very much a, a sort of 20th century state creation. When you look back at what Mao Zedong wrote about the peasant movement in Hunan, he knew very well that Chinese society was saturated with gods and ancestors and clan authority of elders and male authority of men over women, and he actually lumped all these things together in addition to the class system as part of the structures of power and authority. In Chinese society, and, and I think he was right.、Uh, so, if we start from the reason why we think that China is a secular country is we are looking for something resembling how we imagine Christianity to look in pre-modern Europe, and we can we can partly blame Weber for that. Maybe you know the idea that we know what religion is, and then we're looking for its absence. But of course, scholars of religion actually don't start that way. They start by looking at what people do, how people behave, and if you look that way, if you look in every Chinese home and see tablets to ancestors, if you ever look in every Chinese village and community and neighborhood and see shrines to various gods, then you see religion as being everywhere in at least up until the early 20th century in China. But nevertheless, it, it's still、uh, the, the the idea that we can draw a clear line of division between secular and religious is very much a sort of twentieth century political creation、uh, and intellectual creation. As far as today, we see, of course, lots of Buddhist and and Taoist shrines and temples, far fewer than would have existed in late imperial China, as well as Christian churches. And Islamic mosques, and we have、uh, many millions of Chinese who who see themselves as followers of of one or other of those religions, and sometimes more than one. Not so much for the Christians and Muslims, who tend to be, you know, followers of one religion and not others. But then we also see beyond that, of course, the resurgence of. Ways of organizing spiritual belief and practice collectively, at the neighborhood level, at the village level, and that really goes back to the early reform period. And it's very hard to measure numbers, but it's certainly true that, although at the state level China is a secular society, there is a strong influence of many things we might call religious among many, many millions of the population. Right, so I think you already touched upon this point where many would argue, especially、um, those in the Western countries, that、uh, organized religions、uh, haven't 
played a pivotal role in the Chinese society. Uh, yet many ancient Chinese rulers are religious, Buddhist, Taoists, and Confucianism uh, it has had been promoted uh, with the power of uh, state apparatus mm-hmm. in the past. Although whether Confucianism is more of a philosophy or is it a religion is really a matter of debate. Historically, what role did religion play in China and, and how Chinese rulers negotiated the relationship between religion and the state? Yeah. And that's, I mean, how did Chinese rulers negotiate the relationship between religion and state? And what role did religion play politically and for Chinese rulers is uh, another fascinating and large question. I mean, I think it does go again to this question of the definition of religion. Uh, If we start with saying religion is an identifiable ism with certain structures and beliefs and it's separate from society, uh, and that works in some ways for pre-modern China, then we can sort of define things by its absence. I'm being too too intellectual here. This is way too academic. but I would say that Chinese, that rulers of late imperial China, that's including the Ming and the Qing period, the Manchu rulers of the Qing, understood that, uh, well, first they understood themselves as mediators between heaven and earth and heaven and humans. Uh, so they understood their own role in a sort of cosmic frame of reference. They managed the religious sort of system of Chinese society through uh, a series of regulations and government agencies that uh, licensed shrines, that gave titles to various gods. It's, it's well known that there was a kind of parallel between the earthly bureaucracy, at which the emperor was the head, and the pantheon of gods with the Jade Emperor at the head usually. And that was a parallel structure that worked to kind of solidify political authority from the point of view of ordinary people. And then the vexed question of Confucianism. Again, I think whether Confucianism as a religion is the wrong question because we are asking, by asking that question, we're actually asking, does religion resemble something that Westerners are accustomed to calling a religion? And the answer is yes and no, but it's not actually the right question. What, I mean, what is Confucianism? How does it work in late imperial China is, is complex, but it works at a government level, at a bureaucratic level, through, through regulations, through moral teachings that are state-promoted, and that then uh, shape the values and behavior of ordinary people in ways that contributed to to the authority of the state and the stability of society, right? And so rulers in imperial China found resources for politics in the things that we call religion, you know, and they found them useful. They were useful for maintaining social order and maintaining the authority of the dynasty. And I think that's uh, perhaps a good segue to sort of what we are looking at in more contemporary China, because that is one of the questions before the Chinese state, 
today under Xi Jinping is, you know, what do we make of religion? And how can we make it so-called compatible with socialism? Uh, how can we make it a, a thing that builds toward our authority and the authority of the Communist Party rather than mitigates against those things? Right, so fast forward to modern contemporary China from the Mao era to now the country under Xi's leadership. How has the governance uh, of religion and, and the country's religious policies evolved over the years, especially since the funding of the, uh, the new China, as um, they call it, from 1949? So in 1949, with liberation, it's pretty clear that the Communist Party and its leaders thought that they were going to transform the class relations and ideological superstructure of China in relatively short order. Uh, so the initial approach to religion, they actually learned things about the religious belief of the countryside through their revolutionary activities in the 1920s through the 1930s with the Long March and in learning how to uh, make revolution in the countryside, both in Jiangxi and in Yan'an. So they, they came in with a fairly sort of nuanced view of, of how to manage religions. They assumed that religions would die out naturally with the end of, uh, of class exploitation and the class structure. And, and yet they weren't trying to, they also understood the sensitivity of religions for local identities, for ethnic minorities, and they also understood the connection of some religions to international affairs. And in particular, of course, that was Christianity uh, initially, along with Islam to a certain degree, although I don't think they thought as much about the international dimension of Islam in the 1950s. And then the question of Tibetan Buddhism became problematic pretty early on for the Communist Party. But nevertheless, the, the approach of the, the period from 1949 to 1966 was to, to put limits on religions, to ensure that they were free of foreign connections and foreign funding, but to allow religious believers to continue to practice their beliefs, uh, as well as um, trying to eliminate what they labeled as superstitious practices, which were in fact the religious beliefs of the vast majority of Chinese people. <laughs> um, uh, but, but that was the basic approach, was, was control and limitation without overt suppression from 1949 to 1966. In 1966, of course, is the beginning of the Cultural Revolution and part of the Cultural Revolution, one, one dimension of the Cultural Revolution, was this drive to purify entirely the, the brains of the Chinese masses, right? The, the ideology of everyone in society. And therefore, the Communist Party, the revolutionary leadership of the Cultural Revolution period, I think more accurately, because the party itself is under siege at the time, but the revolutionary leadership of that period believed that everything to do with old thought, old habits, old customs, old ideas had to be expunged from 
uh, Chinese society. And so religious institutions found themselves under attack. Uh, religious um, places, places of religious veneration, religious worship were, were all closed down. Um, religious scriptures were burned in the streets. So there's a lot of sort of direct attacks on religion and the suppression of or the elimination of any public display of religious practice from Chinese society. And that goes on until the arrest of Gang of Four in 1976. And then the next two years they're trying to sort of figure out how is this political system going to shake out, who's going to be in control, and religion was not sort of central to that discussion. But in 1978, by 19, early 1978, they basically decided, okay, we need to return to a policy of limited toleration for religion. Part of the reason for that is that the leaders who came to the fore, at least in the management of religious affairs, were aware that the suppression of religion in the Cultural Revolution had actually generated underground networks of religious belief and practice that were outside of state management and they found that much more uncomfortable than allowing public religious practice. So in the late 70s and early 1980s they decide on returning to a policy of limited toleration for freedom of religious belief for Chinese citizens which is written into the uh, 1982 constitution might have been in the 78 Constitution, too, I can't remember. Uh, and in 1982, the Central Committee of the Communist Party released the document commonly known as Document 19, which laid out the fundamental parameters for management of religious practice in Chinese society in the Reform Era. And basically, Document 19 said, first, on a theoretical level, it said, Religion will disappear with the disappearance of social classes, but it's going to take a long time. And then it talked about how important religion is. So religion has a mass nature that involves you know, many millions of Chinese citizens. It has a long-term nature. It's complicated. It involves ethnic identities and national minorities. And it also has an international dimension. So these five characteristics of religion were spelled out in Document 19. And basically the intent of that was to educate the, the bureaucrats, the cadres who are managing religious affairs, that they have to be careful. <laughs> and that it's not simply a matter of just saying, oh, you know what, this doesn't belong with Marxism, so we're going to eliminate it. And the Document 19 laid out the framework for the management of religious affairs in the Reform Era and the, basically said that the religious affairs fall under the management of the United Front Work Department of the Communist Party, Central Committee, and of the uh, Religious Affairs Bureau at that time, which later became the State Administration for Religious Affairs, on the state side. And then the actual delivery of religious services, if you want, is to be managed by one organization for each of the five recognized religions. And those are called the Patriotic Religious Associations or religious organizations. And each religion had one. There's not supposed to be any Christian activity outside of the management of the China Christian Council. 
and the Three Self Patriotic Movement, a kind of double-headed organization that manages Christianity, likewise for Islam, Buddhism, Taoism, and the Roman Catholic religion. Uh, those are the five recognized religions in China. Everything else shaded into the illegal and is subject, was and is subject to uh, a very different kind of management by the public security forces, right? So anyway, that's a long and complicated answer to that question. But the basic, the basic structure is the United Front Work Department, the State Administration of Religious Affairs, and then the, the uh, patriotic religious organizations. There's, there's a fundamental notion that the patriotic religious organizations need to remain arm's length from the state so that they have credibility for the believers in that religion. Now, all of that has changed since under Xi Jinping, and particularly in the last two years. And most fundamentally, the state has announced that they are eliminating the state administration of religious affairs and putting all of the management of religion directly under the United Front Work Department. But we're still sort of waiting to see, and that was sort of early in 2018, I think, but we're still waiting to see how that will sort of play out in practice. Of course, that's a lot of senior people with well-established careers and networks of preferment and pensions and guanxi. So how, how this will actually um, play out is hard, is hard to know. And what it means for the religious believers is also hard to know. Um, and I think we're all waiting to sort of get a better read on how that will work. It's really interesting. <laughs> and uh, well, instead of religions disappearing uh, in China, there appear to be actually a surge of um, religious believers um, in, in, in the, especially the past few decades, there seems to be a bit of an increase. Mm-hmm. So what are the reasons, you think, behind this rise in religion? And, and what whether you think this trend will likely uh, to continue, and also the wide use of internet and social media in China, mm-hmm. slightly different systems, uh, but mm-hmm. um, are these factors also contributed to the rise of religion in China? Yeah, these are these are great questions, and and they're ones on which much much ink has been spilled. We've been talking really since the 1980s about a so-called crisis of faith, and Chinese commentators talk about it too, right? And using that as an explanation for the resurgence of religion, the apparent popularity of religious belief and religious affiliation in Chinese society. For specific things, you can look in the 1990s, of course, there's a craze of interest in Qigong in China, and it's very much promoted in the 1990s by elements within the state as well as the state state-owned media and parts of the like scientific establishment in China who saw it as a way to sort of claim a, a level of insight for Chinese science that is superior to science from other parts of the world but that was and that was often explained in terms of the breakdown of the healthcare system in China in the 1990s as the state tried to dismantle the kind of welfare, like iron rice bowl welfare system uh, of the collectivist era. 
And I think that is part of an explanation. The Qi, Qigong has not done so well since the suppression of Falun Gong beginning in 1998. But it is, uh, it's one important aspect, though, of when, when we're talking about religion in China, we have to remember that we have the rapid growth of practice of, of adherence to the five recognized religions, uh, certainly uh, Christianity, certainly Protestant Christianity, Catholic Christianity, but Taoism, it's harder to measure sort of what adherence looks like. Buddhism, we know that there are many, many millions of people who identify, self-identify as Buddhists. But we also have the growth of, of heterodox or underground movements, both within those religions and on their fringes and completely outside them. And Falun Gong is uh, a, a great example. And somehow, you know, Falun, Falun Gong attracted many millions of followers within China before it was suppressed. And we don't, you know, we, we don't always know how to explain these things. You know, what, it, what actually accounts for growth of religious adherence? There are lots of sort of martial arts-based sectarian movements also in China that are uh, kind of akin to secret societies and that have their adherence and that spread. Um, they remind us that religions, if we know what religions are, I mean, they're a way of organizing the world, ordering the world collectively uh, within human societies. and. You know, some people have speculated that it's simply a natural feature of human society that there is a certain sort of quotient of religiosity in human societies that needs to find expression. I don't know if that's true. I, I'm sort of uncomfortable with that as an as an explanation. I think I think one of the things that we can point to is that both the religions well, religions generally and the Chinese Communist Party uh, place a primacy on belief, on right belief. Not That's less true, actually, of sort of tradition, religion in pre-modern China and in late imperial China. Belief was not as important as practice, and scholars have had a long debate about this, but it was more important to be seen to be doing the expected things toward your ancestors, toward the, the gods, toward the community, than what you believed in your heart about it. But I think the Communist Party and sort of religions like Christianity share this obsession with belief and in, the inwardness of belief. Uh, so maybe in some ways the crisis of faith actually works because it's the Communist Party itself that created that sort of primacy of belief as you, you had to have sincere belief in the revolution, sincere belief in Chairman Mao, sincere belief in the party. And if you weren't sincere, you're, 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 you're going to suffer for it. So uh, maybe in some ways that is part of the story of religion in, in reform era China and its growth is that belief is sort of seen as seen now in ways that it wasn't perhaps in late imperial China as an important attribute of how humans ought to behave in the world. The internet uh, is is fascinating and some of the there's religious groups that have used the internet quite effectively 
certainly in the 90s and in the 2000s. I think we've seen, of course, one of the things we've seen under Xi Jinping is is not so, maybe not heightened vigilance in the sense that the vigilance was or, or already there, but heightened effectiveness in surveilling Chinese citizens' use of the internet and perhaps some some of the more sort of illegal organizations are returning to word of mouth ways of organizing and uh, all of the ways they used in the 1980s and they're they're able to be quite adaptable social media i'm sure is a factor as well but it's not not one that i've studied but of course if you can well we need only look at hong kong and with the protest movements in hong kong in 2014 and now to see how uh, 2013 2013 oh, I can't remember. Uh, to see how the how people can use the connectivity of social media to bring people together at short notice certainly some of the christian churches were using that in 2011 when a, a famous non-registered unregistered christian church protestant church called the shawang church it was suppressed in beijing they started meeting in public parks and they were using sort of social media to announce where and when to assemble for worship. So that's a, um, an aspect of the adaptability of religions in uh, China. And then the, the other thing I think we should, well, two other things. The internet has been useful for uh, marketing of religious products, for example, and there's a I've, I've assigned a very good article on Taoism in the 1990s and 2000s. Uh, this would have been the 2000s, I think, where it was, there was sort of Taoist organizations that were using the sale of special elixirs of longevity and uh, other preparations to then sort of be a kind of a way to draw people into contact with that that set of teachings and that particular group wasn't all Taoists. It was sort of in a, a particular uh, branch of Taoism. And then another reason for the growth or the, at least the public visibility of religions in parts of China is that when we talk about the Chinese state as if it's sort of one unified thing, but of course, you know, the city government of city X may have an incentive to draw tourist dollars to their city by reconstructing a temple or putting a, up a there's an enormous statue of of um, Guan Yu in the city uh, Qingzhou is it where he's from in in the Hebei province right it's it's like eight meters tall or something and it's not not to my mind you know of great aesthetic artistic value but it is there <laughs> and it's there because of the tourist incentive that can exist for, for governments to, uh, to draw tourist dollars to certain, to their own jurisdiction. So, uh, and that's been a factor in, and a sort of source of tension and arguments between religious bodies and state operatives in some parts of China. So fascinating. Talking about management or um, control of uh, religion in China, uh, we have seen that the Chinese government is uh, gradually tightening its control on religion uh, in recent years, particularly when it comes to Christianity and, and Islam. Why do you think that's the case? Is 
the reason uh, when you talk about the the foreign ties of Christianity and and Islam are these like a big factors behind uh, this tightening, increasing tightening of control, especially certain religions in China? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think we've seen, and we see continually when we look at the management of religion in Chinese society that. Anything that is perceived as posing a threat to national unity receives very sort of severe and rigorous attention from state authorities. I mean, it was clear in the 1950s with the cutting off of ties to foreign churches and throwing missionaries out of China. But it was also very clear from the 1950s on with the management of Tibetan Buddhism. And I think it's very important to have Tibetan Buddhism in the frame on this question because the Tibetan Buddhists in some ways have received the most uh, long-term punitive attention from Chinese governments. And then, of course, we've talked about Falun Gong already, but Falun Gong was suppressed starting in 1998 because it was perceived as a threat to national unity, but also a threat to the power of the Communist Party itself, partly because there were people within the senior echelons of the Communist Party who had become followers, right? And who didn't believe, didn't see it as a, uh, a religion as such. Christianity has been a kind of a schizophrenic treatment since the 1980s in the sense that both for Protestants and for Catholics, there's been sort of official organizations that are accepted by some believers in those religions, but not all by any means, right, as being legitimate representatives of the church and what the church ought to look like. Uh, So when it comes to the Catholic Church, for many Catholic believers in China, the authority of the Pope is still a thing, right, And, and is inseparable from being Roman Catholic. And yet that is not something that is really part of the official version of Catholic Christianity in China. And for Protestants, there's a, you know, there's a wide variety of Protestant uh, belief and practice uh, within Chinese society. There are Protestants who believe that the three self church is just fine, or who, there's probably more who distinguish between this church and that church and this pastor and that pastor and they you know they have clear ideas about which pastors are political which are actually so-called spiritual and then there are protestant groups that organize outside of the structure of the the, of the patriotic movement that is supposed to manage christianity in china and they are not necessarily always illegal or suppressed. There's sort of elements within Chinese society that are always trying to push the envelope to test the limits of what is allowed at any given time. And what is allowed at any given time is a shifting thing. But the illegal or unregistered Protestant groups are always potentially subject to suppression. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Under uh, Xi Jinping, one of the changes of recent years has been the attempt to eliminate the visibility of religion 
within particularly within Chinese urban society. So uh, this was pioneered in Zhejiang province in 2013 with a sustained attempt to kind of force churches to take down crosses and other adornments that mark them out as places of Christian belief and, and practice. So that was, that was a new thing that we haven't really seen before. And it was one of the early signals that things were really shifting in a lasting way under the Xi administration. Islam. Islam is, of course, the religion where we're seeing the most sort of, the most dramatic change right now in the way Islam is managed in China and the relationship between Chinese Muslims and the state. As I've said, in Document 19, the ethnic and international dimensions of religion were highlighted, and they were particularly highlighted when it comes to Islam. And Muslim-majority nations are among the most important international relationships China has. You think about the relationship with Pakistan, the relationship with Turkey. These are nations where China wants to foster connections, to maintain strong alliances. I don't know if Turkey, maybe Turkey is not a good example, but uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, there's certainly nations with their relationships that are important for Chinese foreign affairs and China's role in the world. And it's one of the surprising things about what's happening today is that there has not been a strong outcry from majority Muslim nations against the mass internment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. But perhaps I should backtrack and say why, you know, what is happening with Islam and groups like uh, Falun Gong or other underground sectarian movements. The suppression seems to be motivated by alarm at how rapidly they are growing. When it comes to Tibetan Buddhism and Islam, it's less about how rapidly they're growing, I think, although they certainly Islam, I think, is growing in China. Uh, when it comes to Islam and Tibetan Buddhism, it's, although it's probably true that Islam is growing in China, but the efforts to suppress those religions have to do more with a concern that those religions are inherently not compatible with Communist Party authority. And uh, Islam is a religion practiced in China by many millions of Chinese Muslims, but also by certain uh, nationality groups within the People's Republic of China, what the Chinese call minority nationalities, but they're really sort of ethnic subdivisions within the Chinese population. And in the last two years, the Chinese government has been paying particular attention to Xinjiang province and to Uyghur nationalism, basically, in Xinjiang province. Uyghur uh, separatist sentiment, which they, the state seems to associate very directly with Islam. So they seem to have decided that devout Islamic practice is a problem for national unity when it comes to the Uyghurs and other minorities in Xinjiang province. And they have been putting Uyghurs into re-education camps without trial or sentence. And the information that we've 
that's been coming out about these camps is that they might remind Canadian listeners a bit of the, the residential school system, but on a much more massive scale. Where the people are forbidden to practice their religion, forbidden to speak their language, forced to learn to sing the national anthem in Mandarin Chinese, and to undergo various sort of rituals of obeisance to state authority and to Communist Party authority. And it's, it's an alarming development, certainly a, a, a very severe breach of the human rights of the Uyghur population, but it's also a very interesting and important shift away from what has been the dominant religious policy of the reform and opening period. Because the basic idea, as I explained earlier, the basic idea behind Document 19 was we don't necessarily like it, but we have to allow religions to exist and religious believers themselves should manage the affairs of that religion. What we're seeing now in Xinjiang instead is the state saying, you know what, we're no longer comfortable with that. And we don't believe that Uyghur Muslims are reliable and can be you know, seen as uh, loyal citizens. And we don't believe that the mosques and the clerics can manage the affairs of that religion in a way that we're comfortable with. They're drawing on international discourses about terrorism and the terrorist threat that have enabled many other governments to make discriminatory policies toward Muslim minorities in their countries, including European governments, including the government of uh, President Trump. So in some ways, it's not puzzling that the Chinese state would use the language of the war on terror to justify this kind of measure. What is puzzling is that there hasn't been much of an outcry from Muslim-majority countries in the world, which includes some of China's you know, most important either clients or allies. And that is surprising because it was Islam in particular that was marked out as having complicated international associations in Document 19 in 1982. I think partly it is a result of the, the, the shift in Chinese power in the world and also of the Belt and Road Initiative and the incentives that the Belt and Road has offered to uh, other countries, including Muslim countries. But it's, it's a complicated question, and it's, uh, it's one that is uh, important to monitor and watch, and that has implications not only for human rights and Xinjiang and Islam in China, but for all religions in China. Because if, if the party has decided that the semi-autonomous management of religion by believers in that religion is no longer sufficient, then it's not clear what the next steps are and what that means for organized religion within Chinese society going forward. Perhaps follow up on that comment and also uh, reflecting on the past and looking into the future, do you think the Chinese state is in a position to meet the challenges of reconciling the relationship between the state and religion? And would the government's attempts to revive select traditional values um, further complicate this relationship? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, the relationship 
reconciling the relationship between the socialist state and religion is, is sort of the core question of religious policy, from the Chinese state's point of view at least, right? And through the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s, mostly the basic framework of Document 19 held, and every 10 years or so, a top state leader would host a work conference on religion, and religion received the attention of the president or the chairman of the Communist Party for that limited time. And then it went back to being like under regular management. So in, I think it was 1993, Jiang Zemin first invoked the idea that religions had to be compatible with socialism. And then in the 2000s, there was a work conference in about 2005 where the president sort of met with, uh, with Hu Jintao, met with uh, religious workers and the top bureaucrats in charge of religious affairs. And they talked more about adapting to socialism. And that was sort of a, an emphasis for quite a while is, you know, all religions need to adapt themselves to socialism. What we've seen under Xi Jinping is that it seems like there's more more sustained attention to the question of religion from the top echelons of the Communist Party, including President Xi himself. And I think uh, President Xi is, it's probably true that he's more interested in ideological matters generally than his predecessors were. And they were sort of more managerial in their approach. And President Xi has made, you know, very sort of statements about uh, historical nihilism and Communist Party history and lots of things to do with the ideological sphere, which uh, we didn't really see in the previous decades uh, since the, the time of uh, Chairman Mao, I think. But there are still elements within the Communist Party and the state who might want to see a positive role for religions in socialist China. And that is the sort of the sunny reading of religions being compatible with socialism, adaptation to socialism. Like maybe for some people, you could see religions running a bunch of charities where religious believers give money to charities and they did good work in society, they don't pose a threat. That is sort of one form of compatibility with socialism. But it doesn't seem, those don't seem to be the dominant voices right now. They probably were, certainly within the religious affairs bureaucracy, the kind of more liberal and open-minded approaches seem to be gaining ground in the sort of late 2000s. But that doesn't seem to be the case now. Now we see a, a growing emphasis on hostile foreign forces and some of these code words for sort of suppression of unwelcome phenomena in the religious sphere, less of a a sense that there's space in Chinese society for religions to be viewed as sort of a positive element within socialist China. But at the same time, as, as you've said, there is sort of a concurrent attempt to differentiate between Taoism, Buddhism, and a kind of warmed over ersatz Confucianism, and these other religions that have come from abroad. I mean, and 
one might put Buddhism in that category, but people don't generally. And that's that's part of the kind of um, resurgent nationalism as well of the Xi Jinping era, I think, that there's a kind of um, resort to ideological purity of Chinese nationhood and the Communist Party as the embodiment of Chinese nationhood and perhaps President Xi himself as the embodiment of Chinese nationhood, if you want to put it that way. So you ask the question of will, would the government's attempts to revive traditional values complicate this relationship? And I think absolutely yes. And it is one of the, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think about and study these questions because whatever the existence and growth persistence, not just the persistence, but the flourishing of religions in Chinese society over the last 40 years have been a perennial headache for Chinese Communist Party leaders. And they seem to be paying growing attention and experiencing growing alarm over that phenomenon. But I don't think they really know what they want to do about it. And the Communist Party being what it is, I'm sure there are, are top-level debate, debates and probably violent disagreements about what policy direction to take. But it is clear, I think, that the consensus that was represented by Document 19 is now off the table, that there's not really a fixed opinion or consensus of what the best way to manage this quote-unquote problem is. Uh, from the point of view of the Chinese leaders. And what that means for you know the many, many tens, tens, probably hundreds of millions of Chinese who practice something that they consider a religion that's important for their lives, their identities, how they uh, think about their families, how they how they love, you know, how they bury their dead how they mourn, all of these things that hit very close to home for people. So how this will actually play out is, is anyone's guess, but it is something that is interesting to monitor and think about as we go forward. What a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Professor Dunch, for your time today. You're very welcome. Thank you, John. <laughs> 